Uh, good evening. And I wonder if you'd keep open in front of you 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 21, as we continue to explore what it means to flourish as God's people, being rooted in the truth in order to grow in love. Uh, would you bow your heads as we pray and ask God to help us understand his word tonight? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we are your sheep. You are our good shepherd. Your sheep hear your voice. So Father, help us to listen to you tonight so that we may see Jesus afresh. We may hear Jesus afresh and we may leave here tonight all loving Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. When I was exploring Christianity, the truths of the Christian faith, Two things grabbed me when I was exploring the Christian faith, when I had contact with students who were part of the Christian group on the campus of the University of Adelaide. The two things that stood out for me were truth and love. I found in that Christian group a people committed to truth and a people who expressed that in love. And for me, that description is the perfect summary of the letter of 1 John which is all about truth and love, how truth gives birth to love. But it's more than just the theme of the letter of 1 John. For the observant among us, uh, you may have noticed that this is the alternating structure of the letter itself. John has structured his letter along these lines. Here are the six sermons. A passage about truth, a passage about love, a passage about truth followed by a passage about love. And then last week, a passage about truth, And tonight, a passage about love. It's very clear that the love that characterises Christian community, our community, is a love of, a comprehension of, a conviction about the truth. Let me put it like this. What you think is true of the world determines how you love. What you think is true of the world determines how you love. Now, don't get me wrong, love is in many ways just a natural thing. It doesn't always have to grow from profound truths. So we talk about falling in love. And you don't have to work very hard at understanding the deep truths of life in order to fall in love. I know many of you in this room know what that is like. You know, we love our family, we love our friends, and it's just natural affection. But you know, in the Greek, there are three words for love. And they, one of them, two of them aren't the word that John uses for love in this passage. See, in Greek, falling in love is eros, from which we derive romance and erotic from. And the love of family on the other side and friends is philos. These are called the natural loves. They're the kind of loves you don't have to try very hard to kind of feel. They just grow organically out of chemistry or connection or common history. But there's another kind of love, and in the Greek it's a different word. It's a love that's entirely independent of natural affection or affinity. It's agape. And agape appears 27 times in the 15 verses just read out from 1 John 4 verse 7. It's so crystal clear that John is not talking about natural affections that we all have in equal measure. He's speaking of a love that 
moves beyond instincts that we have and beyond circumstances. A love that grows out of a truth, so crosses all kinds of boundaries. And I'll put it to you all tonight. A love that is beyond mere affection requires the truth. What you think is true of the world determines how you love. You see, the false teachers about whom 1 John is kind of alludes to a lot, they were called the Gnostics. See, these guys were excellent examples of what you think is true of the world determines how you loved. They believed as true that the life and teaching, the miracles and death, the bodily resurrection of ascension of Jesus does not matter. They believed that Jesus just came to impart secret light and secret knowledge through crazy mystical experiences and somehow that is what connected to you to divinity or to God. And so instantly, the teaching of Jesus about love doesn't matter. The actions of Jesus about love don't matter. And ultimately, the loving death of Jesus, God himself on our behalf, doesn't matter. You see, the Gnostics shunned agape love. I have no doubt they loved each other in the kind of philos sense, you know, natural affections that a tribal or kind of group that's connected by a kind of a common idea might have, but they shunned the messy, boundary-crossing love that stems from the truth of the gospel. That is the subject of this passage. What you think is true of the world determines how you love. And to this, John makes two simple points that are the two simple ideas of my message today. Firstly, the primacy of God's love, and connected with that, secondly, the centrality of our love. Let me take these two points in turn. The primacy of God's love, point one. Verse seven contains a striking three-sentence word that utterly changed the world. You probably think I'm exaggerating at this point, don't you? But let me read it. Trust me. Have a look at verse seven of chapter four. Dear friends, let us love one another. Because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Three-word sentence. God is love. In Greek, those three words are striking grammatically. Theos, agape, estin. God, love. Is. It's kind of a weird sentence, isn't it? But it's deliberate, I'm sure, because verse 16, he repeats the sentence, the second half. Verse 16, God is love. Exactly, God, love, is. Now the striking thing about this is not so much the grammar, but the striking thing is that in contemporary times, in Greek philosophy and, and in the thinking of the Gnostics whom John's writing against, they would have thought it makes more sense to say God power is, or yeah, or God knowledge is, from which we derive our classical understandings of God's omnipotence, all-powerful, and his omniscience, all-knowing. But John messes with that philosophical religious idea and says, no, 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 God is love. God love is. Not God is loving, not God shows his love. No, God is love in his very being. He is love. Such that everything that issues from God, every movement of God, 
is characterised by love. And this understanding of God amounts to a revolution, utterly unique in the history of ideas. My challenge to you tonight is try and find this idea in any other literature anywhere. And as atheist German philosopher Jürgen Habermas points out, this notion utterly changed the Western world. He's an atheist, but he knows his history. The quote's on the screen. He writes, Egalitarian universalism, from which sprang the ideas of freedom and social solidarity, human rights and democracy, is the direct heir of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. And to this day, there is no alternative to it. He wrote that in 2006. Love, understood as arising from the very essence of God, utterly changed the Western tradition. And if it sounds obvious to your ears when I say God is love, you know why that is? It's because you've been brought up in a Western culture or had some long connection to it that shaped your perceptions of how God ought to be. And out of God's essence, of course, he acts. Verse 9 talks about how he acted in love because God is love. Verse 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atonement of sacrifice for our sins. Breathtaking words. But as a minister who preaches this week in, week out, and for many of you as churchgoers who hear this all the time, it's possible to take that great news for granted. To be so accustomed to the fact that God enters the world in the person of Jesus and dies on an ugly Roman cross and bleeds for us, for our forgiveness, you start to think, I start to think, that any God would do such a thing. That's just what gods do. That's just the obvious stuff for gods to get up to, you know? But it's not. I challenge you to find anywhere in any literature in history of the world that says that God, compelled by his very nature of being love, entered the world and gave himself for us. We are utterly dependent on him, entirely indebted to him, yet he gave himself for us. In his essence, God is love. In his action, God is love. But John drives home the primacy of God's love in another way. I wonder if you noticed it as it was read. God's love is the primary thing that you and I, if you're a Christian here tonight, are to think about in the Christian life. Again, this is really unusual in the history of religious ideas. You see, the normal dynamic of religious relationships is, you know, if you love the deity, the deity will show you love, right? You recognize that kind of instantly. You may even think that right now. But did you see how many times, I count at five, you may see more, in this one passage where he says that this relational dynamic works entirely the opposite way. It's inverted. It has nothing to do with your or my love for the deity. 
It is entirely about His love for you. That's prime. Take a look with me. There's five references I can find at least. Beginning in verse 7. Let me read it again. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows, knows God. You know, I'll put it to you that our normal thought is let us love one another so that, well, love will kind of come to us from God. But this says, no, no, let's love one another because God has loved us already. Verse 10, I love verse 10. It's just so striking and beautiful. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, not that we loved God, but that God so loved his creation, his created ones, you and I, that he died for us. Verse 11 makes pretty much the same point. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Because God loves us, we ought to be loving others. Verse 16, same point here, different language. And we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. I put it to you tonight. Are you relying on the love God has for you as primary in your life? As preceding your love for him, preceding your love for others? Are you relying on the love of God as primary in your life? This radical, sacrificial, redemptive, rescuing love brought you from death to life are you relying on that love as primary in your life and for the very slow in the audience i mean john's audience of course not here verse 19 repeats the point we love because he first loved us seriously could john have made his point any clearer that god's love for us is not a reward for our doing lovely things. God's love for us is the engine room for doing anything. I'm not making this up, am I? It's simply what is here before us, and it's utterly beautiful. And I put it to you tonight, if you don't see God's love for you as primary in your life, then you're not in a position to hear the second point tonight about the centrality of our love. But for those who are prepared for point two, let's go there. The centrality of our love. Point two. You know, again, John could hardly have made it clearer that the Christian life is a life defined by love because it's a life defined by Jesus. And Jesus' life was defined by love. He is the epitome of love. Love was Jesus' life habit point of laying his life down on a cross you know i'm not a mind reader i can't know exactly what you think defines the christian life tonight but i reckon there are loads of people in our world there are plenty of people in your workplace plenty of people in your homes and your friendship groups perhaps plenty of people here tonight in this room who think that being a christian is basically about being righteous really good squeaky clean holy 
patient, moral, pure, and we grasp for words to define what the Christian life is all about. How does John, the apostle, define the Christian life? It's a life of love. The second half of verse 7 captures this for us, where, where Paul, John writes, this is, it's our family resemblance. Everyone who loves has been born of God. It's part of our status of being in Christ. You get connected to the one who is the epitome of love, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you start to look like Jesus. You start to think like Jesus, such that what you look like is love, what you think about is love. Such that it's how we see God in our midst. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. It's a lovely thought. You know, you can't see God. But when a community of Jesus' people loves, God is present. And although you can't see him, you can feel him, you can bump into him, you can smell him. That's what I found at the University of Adelaide. In the lives of those who led me to Jesus, I saw God among them, something different. Could someone see God here tonight among us? Verse 17 and 18 of our passage are quite tricky, so let me just put the brakes on a fraction and slow down. Verse 17. In this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. For we are as he is in the world. Hmm. What's the connection between love and the confidence we can have on the day of judgment? What's the connection between love and confidence on the day of judgment? Please be clear that John is not saying that our love is how we escape God's judgment. He's just said back in verse 10 that trusting in Jesus' death on the cross for our sins is how we escape judgment and come back into right relationship with our Maker. Alright? So our love is not how we escape judgment. Here it is. Are you ready? Drum roll. It's how you know you've escaped judgment. It's not how you escape judgment, but our love is how you know you've escaped judgment. If I can put it in a sentence, so close is the connection between knowing God's love and loving others that when we love others, we grow in confidence that we truly have come to know God's love. You know God because of trusting in Christ's death on your behalf. That restores your relationship that was broken because of our sin and the fall. You know God because you trust in Jesus' once-for-all death on your behalf on the cross. But how do you know you know God? You try to love others. You see His love welling up inside you such that it overflows from you in your love for other people. And you start to say, oh my goodness, God is in me. Yeah? 
Verse 18, as I said, is a little tricky. Let me have a read of it for you. Verse 18. There is no fear, therefore, in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. What's this perfect in love going on? Is it God's love for us? Is it our love for God? Or is it our love for others? Well, yes. In fact, I think what John means by perfection of love in the Christian is not about you perfectly loving God or perfectly knowing His love or perfectly loving other people. He means it's a completed process of the three loves. He means you know God's love, however imperfectly. You love Him back, however imperfectly. And you love other people, however imperfectly. But if that process is active in your life, flowing from knowing the love of God in Christ Jesus... That's what he means by love becoming completed in you. It's not about you scoring 10 out of 10 in the love stakes. It's about you understanding the threefold character of God. God's love for you in Jesus Christ. Your love in response to that love for God. And your love for others. And in that, that process means that the reality of punishment is cancelled because of Jesus' death on your behalf at the cross. But the fear of punishment can be extinguished when you see this process of love in your hearts. And it's the final verses, verse 19 through 21, that unpack this threefold process of love, by which I know what John is talking about from verse 18. Let me read verses 19 through 21. So we love because he first loved us. We love God because God first loved us. Verse 20, if anyone says though, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother. Yeah. Now, if you've just joined us tonight and you're going, what's this stuff all about love and hate? It's, well, let me say, it's not, nothing to do with having warm, fuzzy people on one side and feeling grumpy and hateful about people on the other side of the ledger. I was actually talking about something he mentioned a little bit earlier in this letter, in chapter 3, verse 15 through to 17. Come back with me there, just left in your Bible a little bit. He uses this love-hate complex a bit earlier. He means, I think, caring for the needy or neglecting the needy, both inside the community of God's people and even beyond. Verse Verse 15 of chapter 3. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It's pretty intense. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? Do you see the point? And when he comes back in chapter 4 verse 20 and contrasts love and hate, he's talking there about agape love. 
love that pushes you out beyond your natural affinities into loving all kinds of people. He means a love beyond mere affection, rather a love in action for the good of the other, crossing boundaries, however messy they may be. And by hate, he means the exact opposite of agape love. He means neglecting the needs of others. This is love that transforms us. You know, such that we love because he first loved us. But we truly love him when we love others. That's perfect love. Love of God issuing in love to God, which then issues in love for others. What you think is true determines how you love. And although we can't deny that Christians have been guilty of despicable acts of hate throughout history and even today, as I've said throughout our series in 1 John, Social data paints the picture that Jürgen Habermas mentions, that Christianity's love ethic transformed the Western world and continues to transform our world. I've introduced you to these two top scholars earlier in our series, Dr. Robert Putnam, head of political science at Harvard University, and one of his students who went on to do a PhD under him, Dr. Andrew Lee, he's an Australian. They're both unbelievers. Lee is an atheist on the record. But they are adamant out of the vast research conducted at Harvard University across the United States and through the ANU in Canberra across our country that churches, like us, are weirdly unique sources of bonding people together and bridging across society. I want to read to you tonight from Lee's work. This is stuff that's based on enormous amounts of data. I'm almost embarrassed, actually, to read it aloud. This comes from his book, Disconnected, and the chapter on religion. He writes this, Among churchgoers, those who attended a religious service in the previous month, 25% also participated in a community service or civic association over that same period. That means one in four of you here tonight have outside of your church connections gone out into the world and volunteered for, say, Rotary or the Red Cross or uh, James Milson Village. Uh, Meals on Wheels. Then he says, by contrast to that 25% of us, among non-churchgoers, just 12% participated in a community or civic association. He goes on to say, regular churchgoers are 16 percentage points more likely to have been involved in a voluntary activity and 22 percentage points more likely to have helped the needy. Churchgoers also have strong social ties. For example, he writes, churchgoers were more likely to report that they had someone upon whom they could rely in the event of serious financial problems. It's curious because then he thinks maybe churchgoers exaggerate because we all know that Christians are meant to be kind of loving and warm and cuddly people. So he did another test. What if you're a friend of a churchgoer? Does that have an effect? 
were those who attended church overstudying. The social bonds formed through the church. One way to test this was to ask those who have church-going friends to see if they benefit from their friends' church-going. Yeah, you follow? It made a difference. People with church-going friends are much more likely to say they could expect financial help from their friends if needed. He concludes, quote, If your friends attend church, they're more likely to behave altruistically towards you. And finally, churchgoers are more likely to build friendships with people from a different social class. Agape. Love pushing people beyond boundaries, beyond natural affinities. He writes, people who attend church regularly are more likely to say that they can count among their friends a business owner, a manual worker, or a, wealth, or a welfare recipient. Few other institutions in Australia and America are as effective in fostering this bridging social capital between rich and poor. And just in case you missed it, Andrew Lee makes it clear that he is a confessing atheist, a huge fan of Richard Dawkins, but he thinks Dawkins is completely wrong when he says that the influence of Christianity on society is pernicious, ugly and damaging. This data that Putnam in America and Lee pulls together for Australia However, does not mean that Christians have a monopoly on love. Did you hear me? I don't think Christians have a monopoly on love. Nor do I think that Christians are inherently loving. Hmm. I reckon you can find naturally warm people and naturally cold people in the same proportions in churches as you do in larger society. Christians are not better people than atheists. But I will say this without embarrassment. Christians follow better ideas. Because Christians believe the truth. The truth of the gospel that lifts us from beyond our grubby selves and thrusts us into the community, into communities with love. What about a quick thought experiment just to wrap things up tonight? Imagine for a minute that at the centre of the universe you believe there to be just a big accident. An accident of time and of space. No guiding hand, no purposes, just an accident. Or as Richard Dawkins puts it, quote, at the bottom of the universe is no rhyme or reason, no purpose, no good and evil. DNA just is and we dance to its music. If you think that's true, love will just be inclinations and affections. And across atheist society, as it is across most of society, there are some of us with inclinations to love, and some of us with inclinations to selfishness. If you think an accident sits at the centre of the universe, it changes everything. Now, 
Imagine something different with me, and I hope this is not too hard for most of us to imagine. Imagine that at the center of the universe is a God who first loved us, who gave himself for us. Love becomes logical. Love becomes your life habit. Even if you're a naturally cold and selfish person, you know, I'm looking at some of you right now. What you believe to be true of the world determines how you love. This is true theologically. This is true theoretically. This is even true in society. The data says so. But rather than worry about all that tonight, let's just worry about Church by the Bridge, Lavender Bay. Do we really believe to be the absolute truth at the centre of all things that God first loved us? Unworthy ones, grubby ones, messy ones, broken people. Do we believe to be true that God first loved us? God's word to us tonight. I want you to remember the primacy of God's love for us in Jesus. And then the reality of the centrality of our love for others. It's not rocket science. But by all means, it will mean we will flourish for the good of all, and above all, for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, in your mercy, tonight we thank you for giving us a fresh sense of your love. Our Father, help us to start each day, and therefore live each minute of each day, with your love for us in Jesus Christ at the forefront of our minds, our heart, and deep in our bones such that we would then be propelled into your world to make love for others central in our lives. Father, would you transform us and would you help us by your powerful Holy Spirit? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.